0: You're listening to a sermon preached at Meridian Church. For more information about Meridian Church, visit meridianchurch.com. It is our hope that this sermon is used by the Holy Spirit to minister to you the grace and peace found in Jesus Christ to the glory of God the Father. And now, here's your sermon audio. Paul's letter to the Philippians. Philippians chapter 4. I'll be reading chapter 3 and verse 1, chapter 4, verses 1 through 9. Our focus will be on verses 4 through 7. So Philippians 3, 1. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Now 4 and verse 1. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. I entreat Eodia, and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. If there's any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Holy Father, Forgive us that in the folly of sin we are so ridiculous that we would rather be miserable in our sin than rejoice in you. We are so foolish in our sin that we would disobey commands such as this. It's a command that flavors every command. Rejoice in the Lord always. And so grant grace in Christ to see the beauty and wonder of, of all your commands to us, but especially these that we're examining this morning. Realizing that as we receive all these in Christ, how how healthy and nourishing and upbuilding and Strengthening and gracious and good they are. In Christ's name I pray, amen. Like those pictures where a set of stairs rises only to seemingly turn back into itself, this text is a kind of optical illusion. It stands out from the letter and yet it blends in with it. Whenever you first examine it, you don't so much see the illusion so much as you sense it. But as you stare at it within the frame of the letter itself, it becomes more and more apparent. Here you have a series of rapid-fire staccato commands. And that their commands isn't what stands out so much to you. Philippians, if anything, you would expect more commands. Philippians stands out in that way from all of other Paul's letters. It's unique in that it doesn't follow the typical division. Every letter of Paul's, save this one, has a a theological section that's then followed by a practical or application section, teasing out how that theology gets on the ground. But this letter was not occasioned by some heresy at Philippi. Remember what this letter is a response to is their gift that they've sent to Paul. And so Paul doesn't open with theology except as he opens with applied theology, these commands. The opening is a command, chapter 1 and verse 27. Live as citizens worthy of the gospel of Christ. And so for this reason, because of how this letter comes about, some have said that the theme of the Philippian letter is the Christian life in general. And you can see it with that opening command. Live as citizens, worthy of the gospel of Christ. It's an encompassing command. Not only can every other command in this letter come under it, it's a command that can serve as a heading for all your Christian life. This is what the Christian life means. It means you're a saint, you're set apart, you're a heavenly citizen, and you're to live... Worthy of that, you're to live befitting the gospel that has set you apart. A number of commands follow and they can all be placed under this heading. And not only that, many of these commands are encompassing in nature themselves so that they serve as an exposition, as it were, on that first command, telling you from a particular angle what it means to live as a heavenly citizen worthy of the gospel of Christ. But these commands stand out from all the others we examined in that they're an example of what is called a syndeton. A syndeton is whenever you have a conjunction missing in a sentence. So, for example, if we looked at verse 6, we, we wanted to make it an example of this. It would read, Do not be anxious about anything. In everything, be by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. You, you would expect a conjunction to be there and it's left out. But the way that works in ancient languages is, have you ever noticed how often some of Paul's sentences begin with and, 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 but? And that's faithful to the original language. There's a connection that's being shown again and again by Paul, or it can be something like you have in 4 and verse 1, therefore, my brothers, connecting this new command to what Paul has been saying. And even whenever new material is introduced, like you have in 3 and verse 2, I entreat you, Odia and Syntychei. And I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion. You sense the flow that's going along here. But these commands just come at you. One after another. No connecting particle. Carrying forth a, a kind of logic and reasoning throughout them. So it seems that here you just have this kind of random pile of bones. No connective tissue, no tendons, no ligaments. Tying everything together. And yet, as you stare, it it stands out in this way, and then you begin to stare at it, it blends in. Though there's not an explicit logic binding these commands together, you don't have to look very long, and you can see, you imagine the connective tissue and the tendons and the ligaments that are there. This isn't a random pile of bones. This pile of bones has been chosen and arranged As it is for a reason. I believe what allows you to see all the connections that are there. They're not teased out. But you see them. What allows you to see them. Is that these commandments are like a pot of stew. Made up of leftovers. All the elements that have gone into the pot. We've already encountered along the way. And they've just accumulated and been thrown on the back burner and allowed to stew, and all the flavors have been allowed to be brought out and, and marinate. And so whenever you taste these commandments, they taste familiar because you've already been feasting on them, and for that reason, you automatically see the logical connections that are developing here without Paul having to tease them out. Joy. Peace, unity, humility, thinking of others, thinking and doing, imitation. All of that's here, you see. These commands also, you note, fall into two sets, both of them ending with a peace wish. So verse 7, the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Verse 9, The peace of God will be with you. And today we're just going to cover the first set, verses 4 through 7. And the first command we come to is emphatic. Rejoice in the Lord always and again I say rejoice. He repeats it twice. He not only repeats it twice, whenever he says it the first time, he's already repeating himself. Chapter 3 and verse 1. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. And I've argued that whenever Paul says finally there, he really means it. That he's come to his concluding thought that he dwells on at length through these last two chapters. And though there's a a, a scenic detour, a, a parenthetical statement or two that comes along the way, this remains the concluding thought in Paul's mind. And it's not only the concluding thought, but whenever Paul says to write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. I believe Paul is telling us, I've been writing about this already. This is not only a final point then, it's been a recurring point. Chapter 2 and verse 14, do all things without grumbling or disputing. And so whenever Paul says, rejoice in the Lord, he simply turned the coin for you to see the other side. He goes on to say, even if I'm, to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith. I'm glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me, Two seventeen and 18. Long before Paul commanded joy in any way in this letter, he's been commending joy throughout this letter with his life. 1 in verse 3, he speaks of making his prayers for them with joy. He rejoices in the proclamation of the gospel, even be it by those with false motives, so long as it's the true gospel that's being preached in 118. He resolves to rejoice anticipating the gospel work that lies ahead, 118 and 19. And part of that gospel work is his hope to be with the Philippians, and he wants to be with them, he says, for their joy and progress in the faith, 125. Chapter 4 and verse 1, he speaks of them as being his joy so this command is emphatic so much so that many have argued that joy is the theme of the letter but it's not only emphatic it is extensive we are to rejoice in the lord always now if you doubt the alwaysness of this command consider just 3 biblical examples first the one you have right in front of you paul He's not writing this from a cush, leisurely position. He's in prison. And though he expects to be released, he is not certain of it. It could go either way. And he said, I've learned to be content, whatever state I'm in. He rejoices. How can he rejoice? Well, he tells you, I know that whatever's happened has served to advance the gospel. 1 in verse 12. He rejoices in the Lord. Or consider Job. After his oxen, donkeys, camels, sheep, servants, and children are either consumed, carried away, or killed... We read, Job arose, tore his robe, shaved his head, fell on the ground and worshipped. And he said, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked I shall return. Yahweh gave, Yahweh has taken away, blessed be the name of Yahweh. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. Now, the atmosphere wasn't jovial. It wasn't chipper. It wasn't light. But I don't know how to describe what Job did other than to say, whenever he worshipped God, he was rejoicing in the Lord. He had nothing else to rejoice in whenever he expressed this praise. Or third, though our Lord trembled, at the thought of draining the cup of the Father's wrath against our sins down to the dregs. Yet we also must own the truth that Philippians tells us, or excuse me, Hebrews tells us when it calls for us to look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of God the Father. Hebrews 12. Our Lord always obeyed this always command. And let that teach you something about the complexity, the diversity with which this command as it's obeyed can present itself. Whenever Jesus wept over Jerusalem, it was an expression that His joy was in the Lord whenever he drove out the money changers and was angry, his anger was an expression of his joy being in the Lord. Whenever he was gentle, and whenever he was righteously indignant, he was rejoicing in his Father. D.A. Carson writes that the kingdom of god may be entered through suffering acts 14:22 the kingdom of god may be entered through suffering but it is characterized by joy paul told the romans the kingdom of god is not a matter of eating and drinking but of righteousness and peace And joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. Romans 14, 17 through 18. Joy is a defining, distinct mark of the Christian. It is a distinct mark of the Christian life. So in light of this, I pray you can see the problem as as John Piper does. Whenever someone might tell you to just do your duty. And and Piper argues there's something very right and true whenever someone tells you that. And yet there's a big problem. And the problem is in the word just. Just do your duty. He writes, joy is part of your duty. The Bible says rejoice always, 1 Thessalonians 5.16. And in regard to the duty of giving, it says God loves a cheerful giver, 2 Corinthians 9.7. In regard to the duty of service, it says serve the Lord with gladness, Psalm 102. In regard to the duty of mercy, it says do it with cheerfulness, Romans 12.8, the duty of mercy. In regard to the duty of afflictions, it says count it all joy, James 1.2. We simply water down the divine command when we call someone to half their duty. This command to rejoice in the Lord always is akin to the command to love Yahweh your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. Love God with all, rejoice in the Lord always. It's extensive. And so you see, once again, we've come then to an encompassing command, The Westminster Shorter Catechism says that the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Piper has argued that we do no violence to the catechism. Indeed, we bring out the intent of the authors. If we would modify it to say that the chief end of man is to glorify God by enjoying Him forever. And for support in this, he calls on his hero, Jonathan Edwards, frequently. Edwards will demonstrate the encompassing nature for us of this command by showing how essential it is to glorifying God. He writes, God is glorified within himself. So within the Trinity, he says, God glorifies himself in these two ways. One, By appearing to himself in his own perfect idea of himself or in his Son who is the brightness of his glory. So one way God is glorified within the Trinity is how the members of the Trinity reflect the glory of the Trinity. Then he goes on, by enjoying and delighting in himself, by flowing forth in infinite delight towards himself or in his Holy Spirit. So, Uh, Edward's Trinitarian picture of the joy of God is that God beholds His own image, as it were, in the Son. And then the delight that He has in that image of Himself is expressed via the Holy Spirit. The person of the Spirit is an expression of the joy that the Father has in the Son. So God glorifies himself so God glorifies himself toward the creatures also in two ways. One, by appearing to their understanding, two, in communicating himself to their hearts and in their rejoicing and delighting in and enjoying the manifestations which he makes of himself. God is glorified not only by his glorys being seen, but by its being rejoiced in. When those who see it delight in it, God is more glorified than if they only see it. His glory is then received by the whole soul, both by the understanding and the heart. God made the world that He might communicate and the creature receive His glory, and that it might be received both by the mind and heart. He that testifies his idea of God's glory doesn't glorify God so much as he that testifies also his approbation of it and his delight in it. Rejoice in the Lord always. It's emphatic, it is extensive, and it is encompassing because God is most glorified whenever we are most satisfied in him how do you do that this side of glory in the face of cur- the curse in the face of our sin in the face of our sin as part of the curse being given over to it and And it having such effects upon humanity. How do you obey this command? And the answer is right before us. And it's so simple. The command here is not simply rejoice. The command is rejoice in the Lord. You're not being asked to rejoice as you look out and you see the holocaust of abortion you're not being asked to rejoice as you look out you see wars hatred violence the command here is to rejoice in the lord and the Lord is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He doesn't change. Mourn tragedies. Weep over your sins. But rejoice in the Lord. Carson is helpful here again. He says, in one sense, this injunction is so self-evidently right that it's embarrassing that we should have to be reminded of it. Surely all redeemed men and women will want to rejoice in the Lord. Our sins have been forgiven. If you, and again, remember Paul is writing to those who are saints in Christ. They are in the Lord. And if you're in that position, Paul is telling you, this should be your stance. Joy. If you find this always hard Because of our sinful mess, it often is hard. But if it's hard, and when it is hard, do this. Simply, slow down. And ask yourself, have I not sinned against the high and holy God of heaven today? Numerous times. What... Does my sin deserve? And is there not mercy and grace in Christ? And if such a pause does not bring some degree of joy. Keep on dear one. If the emphatic, encompassing, extensive, encompassing nature of this command seems daunting, it's simply for this reason. We are thinking of everything else but our Lord. Nothing is bigger than our Lord. Not our sin, not the curse, not the devil and his angels. Nothing is bigger than our Lord. Rejoice in Him. In Him you will find both the source and the object for eternal and everlasting joy. In between Paul's two commands to rejoice in the Lord, 3-1 and 4-4, in between those we had a command to agree in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord, agree in the Lord. And now sandwiching this command to rejoice in the Lord. Always we have a command to agree in the Lord and this command that follows it, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. So joy sandwiches the commands to get along and the command to get along is sandwiched by, uh, the commands to get along sandwich this command to rejoice. And if you're not seeing the connection that's here clearly yet, Reflect on this word reasonable for a bit. It's most often translated gentle or gentleness. You really get a sense of what this word means by the company that it keeps and the company it excuses. It excuse. So it's for the company it keeps. Listen to Titus 1, 1, and 2. Remind them... To be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, that's the same word, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. You see the kind of company this command keeps, being gentle. Now for the company that it eschews, Paul instructs Timothy that elders are not to be violent, but, same word, gentle. Titus, uh, 1 Timothy 3.3, not violent, but gentle. And so can you see why the ESV in this instance, I think gentleness would be the better translation still, but nonetheless, the ESV does do you a service in bringing out something of the idea of this word whenever it says reasonable. Can you see why it chose it? It's not a violent person, it's a reasonable person. The gentle soul is the one that you can talk to, you can reason with. And now do you understand how joy plays a role in all of this? How you're able to obey this command to let your reasonableness be known if you're obeying the command to rejoice in the Lord. And try this thought experiment. And warning, it's a thought experiment that you've teased out with your fingers and your feet and your mouths. But let's say you go from work to home or home to work, it doesn't matter, either direction, but you leave happy, you leave joyful, Things, there's peace and harmony and love just blooming and flourishing at home. Or it's been a really great day at work. And you come home. Or you go to work. And the thing is you have to deal with people. Irate, irritable, unreasonable sinners. Either way you go. But is it not much easier to deal with them and be reasonable and gentle... If it's been a good day, if you're leaving a good place, if it's been a great day at work, fathers, is it not much easier not to bite the little children's heads off for minor infractions and irritations? And saints, we have the grace that's found in Christ so that we can rejoice in the Lord always, such that this joy is to permeate all of our life, and our reasonableness can then be known to everyone. This command recalls all those earlier commands to think of others, those commands that concern unity and love, but now it's expanded outward further in view. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone, your gentleness be known to everyone, And then you have this phrase, the Lord is at hand. And whenever you look at this, as far as understanding what it means, the most important thing is easily escapable here. So you have it in the ESV. I'll tell you the most important thing in understanding that phrase is the semicolon. And you recognize this, that your punctuation quite frequently is more so a matter of interpretation than it is translation. The original languages don't have punctuation. They don't even have paragraph divisions. Both of those matters are interpretational issues and can do you a disservice at times as you're reading the Word. And so the question is, the Lord is at hand. Does that go to verse 5, or does it go to verse 6? You read different translations, they have it different ways. And here's the conundrum. Which way it goes in my opinion, depends on what it means. And what it means depends on which way it goes. So, the Lord is at hand can be a reference to the return of our Lord. And if that's the case, I believe it goes back to verse 5. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do you see the implication? God is coming and live in light of that. It begins to taste like Live as heavenly citizens worthy of the gospel of Christ. You're a heavenly citizen. The Lord is returning. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. Or it could have the sense of God is present. The Lord is at hand. Such as we see in Psalm 145, 18. The Lord is near. Yahweh is near to all who call on Him. To all who call on Him in truth. And if that's the sense, that's the idea, then it goes forward to verse 6 clearly. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious, but let your request be made known to God. Both are true, but which one is it? Well, I don't think we can be certain, but I think the ESV punctuation is the better interpretation. I think the New American Standard does a better job of translation in that it just makes it its own sentence. The Lord is at hand, period. The problem is the New American Standard, by its paragraph divisions, makes you think that the Lord is at hand goes back to verse 5, you see. The better translation would be, the Lord is at hand and just have it hang out there all by itself. And leave it to you to figure out which way does it go. Anyhow, the next command... We go from reasonableness before men to request before God. Let your reasonableness be known to men. Let your request be made known to God. But this command is joined together. Not to be anxious, we are to be prayerful. Do not be anxious about anything. You see the connective tissue again? Don't be anxious about anything. Rejoice always. And if you do that... Will not your reasonableness be known to everyone? If you just obeyed those two kind of commands, those two commands. And this command is extensive. Do not be anxious about anything. And I think the first thing our dark little sinful hearts do whenever they hear that command is begin to think of all kinds of legitimate concerns as excuses for our illegitimate worries. Paul speaks of his anxiety for the churches in 2 Corinthians eleven twenty-eight. 28. The same word in the original language is used, to tr- as, is used with the idea of concerns or anxiety. And you ha- the context is going to determine which way you're to understand that. Is this a legitimate concern or a illegitimate worry? But just because the same word can mean anxiety or concern does not mean that We should conflate the two ideas any more than the word person can refer to someone who is male or female. But just because that's so, we don't want to conflate the ideas of male and female and make them the same thing. So we read this command and we may think of mental disorders, chemical imbalances, seasons and life and high stress situations that one can encounter. And I don't deny any of those things. It's simply that we need to speak. I want to speak in this regard. Your first action should not be to think of excuses in obeying this command, but to take responsibility to obey as much of it as you can. Medication might be needed. Not desired, mind you. Needed. But you should only want to take it to liberate you to take responsibility for as much as you can. The tricky thing about this sin... And it's true of all sins, it just gets cloaked in this matter. The tricky thing about the sin is that it's so uh, often um, exacerbated by, started by, accompanied by other sins. And what happens is, we don't think anymore of those other sins, we just think of the sin of our anxiety, it can involve a failure to obey a command like 4 in verse 8. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely. A failure to obey that command, you see, can be the reason why you fail to obey this command. Or it can be a failure to obey the command of self-control. So the person who stays up very late, gets up very early, has a bad diet and exercise... They failed to exercise self-control and obedience in other matters and that pours over into obeying this command. Now this is not always the case, but my point is simply this. Our lean should always be towards taking as much responsibility as we can. And what we will often find is what we can take responsibility for is a great deal. And always a great deal more than we think. Now if you think I or the Apostle Paul is being too harsh in this matter, consider that our Lord forbid anxiety. He forbid it. And none was more gentle or meek. He will not break the bruised reed or quench the smoldering flax His words from the Sermon on the Mount on this subject are worthy of being quoted in full. I tell you, therefore, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they Therefore, do not be anxious saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear for the Gentiles seek after all these things? And your heavenly father knows that you need them all, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Spurgeon said, anxiety does not empty tomorrow of its sorrows, but only empties today of its strength. You see, what seems harsh is healing. Anxiety is toxic to life. Not only is it toxic to life, it is a sin against heaven. Our God is worthy of all of our faith and all of our joy. And anxiety stands against God in both when both counts. We're not to be anxious, we're told, but to be prayerful. Anxiety looks at our troubles as big in light of our small self. And that is where humanity stands. And humanity should know nothing but anxiety outside the Lord. But these commands come to us as we are saints in Christ. And so prayer looks at our troubles as small In comparison to our big God. Anxiety looks at sin. The curse. It looks at all creation through the lens of self. Rather than the lens of the Lord. Anxiety. You see. Is arrogant. Anxiety tries to be God. Now. It's a humble God. It's a distraught God. It's not a confident God at all. So there are two type of people. The prideful think that pride in one way shows itself in confidence. They think they're God and they're delusional that they can actually hold it all together. And then there are the anxious. They're trying to be God just as much. But they realize they can't hold it all together. And it says, unless I can hold it all together, there will not be peace. Anxiety is humility misplaced and morphed into the prideful sin of self-reliance. Or rather we should say, it's self-reliance dressed up, cloaked in faux humility. Paul Miller demonstrates the connection between prayer and anxiety well writing, what does an unused prayer link look like? And he's saying, life is meant to drive you to prayer. There are things that are meant to link you up to God in prayer. What does an unused prayer link look like? He answers, anxiety. Instead of connecting with God, our spirits fly around like severed power lines, destroying everything they touch. Anxiety wants to be God but lacks God's wisdom, power, or knowledge. A godlike stance without godlike character and ability is pure tension. Because anxiety is self on its own, it tries to get control. It is unable to relax in the face of chaos. Once one problem is solved, the next in line stands up, steps up. The new one looms so large we forget the last deliverance. Life as a creature, life as not God, means you need. You desperately need. But this need not be cause for anxiety. And the reason is, you're in Christ. You're in the Lord. You're in this place where you can rejoice. Now in case... The link between uh, don't be anxious, but pray means not praying with anxiety, like uh, turning your prayer into just an anxiety ventilation place. In case that's not clear, you're told to offer up these prayers with thanksgiving. You're coming in Christ before a benevolent, generous, sovereign, omnipotent, wise, good, heavenly Father. You're coming to that heavenly Father in Christ, clothed in His righteousness, gripping on to Christ, whom we're told God's every promise is yes and amen in Him. And you're coming to your heavenly Father through Christ by the Spirit who has Put you in union with Christ. You come to a Father who is more ready to give than you are to ask. You come to your Heavenly Father who gave His only begotten Son. Come, ask, and ask with thanksgiving. The absence of thanksgiving speaks to the absence of faith. Remember who you are asking your Father. Remember through whom you are asking the Son. Remember by whom you are asking the Spirit. You may be anxious about the request itself, though. Oh, he he will say no. How foolish we are. Our God always answers our prayers better than we ask them. In one sense, we can say God's answer to our every prayer is yes. It is yes to what is best for us in His being glorified and magnified. Jesus taught us, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be open to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be open." Or which one of you? If a son asks him for bread, we'll give him a stone. Or if he asks for a fish, we'll give him a serpent. If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? What Jesus told His disciples in John 16, Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in My name, He will give it to you. Until now, you have asked nothing in My name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. The promise is that the Father will give us whatever we ask in Jesus' name. So the first thing that curbs this from going sideways into Prosperityville is that you reckon, what can I ask in faith, confidence in Jesus' name? But let's approach it from that other angle. Ask these things that your joy may be full. Approach it from the angle of our text. We're to rejoice in the Lord always, that includes whenever we're offering up whatever petitions concerning these things that would cause us anxiety if we allowed them to go free. So we're reigning them in, we're wanting to obey this command to rejoice in the Lord always, offering up this petition with thanksgiving. If you come, you see how this reigns in your petitions? Perhaps the reason why we don't want to let our request be made known to God as we're commanded here is because we don't want to rub our idolatry in His face. Because the petition would not be an expression of rejoicing in the Lord, but of rejoicing in something else. If we fail to obey this command, to to let our request be made known to God... I think it speaks to a failure that's already happened in rejoicing in the Lord always. And then the cycle perpetuates. So that because of our anxiety and lack of faith, we're not rejoicing in the Lord. And then because we're not rejoicing in the Lord, we don't offer up our petitions. And because we're not offering up our petitions, we're bound up in our anxiety and belief. But if we do come before our God in prayer in this way, the promise is that the peace of God, a peace of God that is—it it defies understanding beyond our comprehension, this peace of God, and it's a peace, mind you, that's in Christ Jesus, that guards us in Christ Jesus. This, this peace finds its same location as our joy does. If we pray in this way, this peace will guard our hearts and minds. It's a militant peace. It's a warful peace. What is this, pe- what is this guard against? Anxiety. What is a guard protecting? Joy in the Lord. If you are wondering what this looks like, go to God's School of Prayer the Psalter. Go to a school of prayer, and in God's providence, we're going to be studying the Psalms for some time after we uh, finish up in Philippians. But I want to give just two examples. I don't want to comment at length on it, maybe just here and there. But listen, as I read these two Psalms, and I want you to think about how Rejoicing in the Lord can have a complex face on it at first. In lamentation. In pouring out their hearts. But notice how there's a kind of prior stance of, My joy is in the Lord. That gets carried over into those prayers. And expressed with those kind of petitions. That keeps it from going crazy. Notice the thanksgiving, the faith, the peace that come on the other side. So first, Psalm 13. How long, O Yahweh, will you forget me forever? Now can you see in that lamentation the expression of rejoicing in the Lord? It's saying, I don't have any joy anywhere else. Else but in the Lord. How long, O Yahweh, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Yahweh, my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemies say I've prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. But, I have trusted in your steadfast love. You see what he's begun to do. He's begun thinking on things that are true. And rather than allow his worries and anxieties to run free, he's he's brought them into submission to this command to rejoice in the Lord. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to Yahweh because he has dealt bountifully with me. Or Psalm 131. Oh Yahweh. My heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. How much anxiety would be solved if we would just imbibe that. But I have calmed. And quieted my soul. Like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. I have calmed and quieted my soul. O Israel. Hope in Yahweh. You, you want to know how he came to that place? O Israel. Hope in Yahweh. From this time forth. And forevermore. Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. It's hard not to imagine the connective tissue between all these bones. And it's left to you to make that imaginary picture real. Put tendons and muscle and flesh to these commands. Make the connection between these bones with your very lives. Let's pray. Father, I pray this is much more than an exercise for our minds but one for our hands and feet and muscles souls, hearts hearts in both sense Father Praise be to you that we hell-deserving sinners have redemption as we've been redeemed by the blood of the cross. We come to you in Jesus' name and by the Spirit. We come before the throne of grace as children. Knowing that you have nothing but Good will towards us in Christ, because of Christ. Left to ourselves, we could not obey these commands, but you tell us to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, because you are at work in us, both to will and to do your good pleasure. We can rejoice in the Lord because we're in the Lord and by the Lord, through the Lord and for the Lord, we have, we have everything we need. Father, for the glory of Jesus Christ, mark us, mark your people as a distinctly joyful people. Not, not something light and trivial that's just rooted in who we are naturally by personality and bent. And, no, something that is is absolutely true of us because we are in the Lord. We are in Christ. Don't allow us to lose sight of that by trivial concerns and allow us to testify that before the world so that they might see it in us. In the strong name of Jesus we pray this. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon audio from Meridian Church. Please feel free to share this resource with others. We only ask that you do not alter the content in any way. Again, you can find more resources at meridianchurch.com.